This is Philosophy Bites with me, Nigel Warburton. And me, David Edmonds. Philosophy Bites is unfunded. Please help us keep it going by subscribing or donating at www.philosophybites.com or you can become a patron at Patreon. Who is Nigel Warburton? How would you describe him? Well, he's the main interviewer for Philosophy Bites. But what if, actually, I'm the main interviewer and cunningly disguise my voice to confuse you? Would the name Nigel Warburton then refer to the person currently known as David Edmonds? Confused? Here's the person known as Michael Devitt on names, reference and experiments. Michael Devitt, welcome to Philosophy Bites. Thank you for having me. The topic we're going to focus on is experimental semantics. What is experimental semantics? Well, experimental semantics is concerned with the experimental testing of theories of reference. So it's not really about semantics, which I understand to be all about meaning. It's about what words refer to. Well, at least it's about reference. It's about the theory of reference. So if I use the word Shakespeare, it refers to a particular person who lived and wrote the plays that we say by Shakespeare. Right, and if you, if you use the word rabbit, it refers to all those rabbits, and if you think of the word chair, it refers to all those chairs, and so on. So the theory of reference is concerned with theories of in virtue of what. Shakespeare refers to that famous playwright, in virtue of what rabbit refers to all those animals, and so on. What about the experimental bit, though? We've talked about what reference is. How do experiments come into philosophy here? They get in like this. The experimentalists have been dismayed, I think it would be accurate to say, by the way that the traditional philosophers of language study and test their theories of reference. They come up with their theories of reference, and there are some famous ones known as the description theory of reference and the causal theory of reference and so on. And they test them by their own intuitions. They come up with their own intuitions. Does this intuitively refer to this person or not? And other philosophers have their intuitions, and that's the way theories of reference are tested. And the experimentalists are shocked by this, and uh, they respond by saying, look, why should it be only the philosopher's intuitions that count here? What about the folk? So let's go out and test the folk. And that's what they did. Another way of putting this is that philosophers do it in armchairs, and they shouldn't. Right. This was part of the revolt against armchair philosophy. Yes, we should bring a bit of empirical science to bear on this. So as a result of that, some experimental philosophers have gone out into the world and tried to find out what a range of people think about test cases, some examples that are famously used in philosophy. Yeah, that's exactly right. And what they did was they took up a very famous example from Saul Kripke's classic work, Naming and Necessity, It was the example of Gödel, one of many arguments that Saul produced to undermine the received theory of reference at that time for proper names, which was known as the description theory. According to a a description theory of names, the reference of a name is determined by its associated descriptions. That is to say, the descriptions that people competent with the name associate with it, some of those descriptions determine what it refers to. It refers to whatever those descriptions pick out in the world. So, for example, the famous logician Kurt Gödel, his name, Gödel, picks out, according to the description theory, picks out that famous logician in virtue of its association, the name's association, among competent speakers, with a certain description, almost 
certainly the description, the prover of the incompleteness of arithmetic. That's the description that everyone who is competent with the name Gödel associates with it. So what's the counterexample? How did Kripke challenge that notion? Yes, well, Kripke came up with this characteristically ingenious example. Just suppose, counter to the fact, of course, that Gödel had not proved the incompleteness of arithmetic, but rather had stolen the results from someone else. Let's call him Schmidt. Schmidt died soon afterwards in mysterious circumstances, and Gödel simply passed off this result as his own. And Saul asks, well, in these circumstances, what would the name Gödel refer to? And his intuition, and it's an intuition shared by all philosophers just about, is that in those circumstances, the name Gödel would still refer to the person who came originally from Austria and lived many years in Princeton and who actually can prove the incompleteness of of arithmetic. So the fact that that in this counterfactual situation he did not prove the incompleteness of arithmetic would not affect the reference of the name at all. Yet according to the description theory, the reference of the name in that counterfactual situation ought to be to Schmidt. Am I right then that the experimentalist just went out then and asked a range of other people, not Kripke or not philosophers, what they thought about this Gödel case? Yes, that's exactly right. They tested some undergraduates at Rutgers and in Hong Kong obvious representatives of the folk, to see what their intuitions were. And were they the same as Kripke's? Well, there's a slightly complicated answer to that. There was a lot of variation among them all. So whereas philosophers, Kripke included, are practically unanimous in having the intuition that the name in these circumstances refers to the person who lived at Princeton and so on, both these sets of undergraduates, there was a considerable variation in their responses. On average... The Rutgers ones came out with Kripkean intuitions, and the Hong Kong ones, interestingly enough, did not on average come out. But the most striking thing about the results was that there was a lot of variation in intuitions. Couldn't some philosophers' intuitions be worth more than other people's intuitions in the sense that Kripke will have thought about this quite deeply? He's got an experience of thinking about language and so on that some of these other undergraduates won't have had. And he's also a brilliant thinker. Yes, well, I think that's a a very good response. It's known as the expertise defence, that, look, we should trust the philosophers' intuitions, and why should we even bother about the folk intuitions? Because the philosophers are the experts. Well, the experimentalists are very rude about (laughs) this sort of response from philosophers, thinking it reflects narcissism. It does, however, seem to me to be a good response. What it does, of course, is raise the whole issue of why should we rely on anyone's intuitions? If we're going to claim that philosophers are better than the folk, why? Why do you think that some people's intuitions count for more than others? That's an interesting question. Look, we need to think, first of all, why should anyone's intuitions really be of any value in testing theories? And I suppose the traditional philosophical view of this would be that, look, intuitions are things, say, intuitions about language or other things, are things we know a priori and so on. I think that's very, very mistaken. I think that intuitions are, in fact, just ordinary empirical judgments about the world. If we think of them this way, we would expect that people who are expert, they're the people who've had the training, they've got better theory, and so you would expect them to come up with better empirical judgments. And there's a deal of empirical support for that view. That sounds really interesting. What what sort of support is there? 
I'll give you two examples. Wisniewski, a cognitive psychologist, did some experiments. And these experiments showed that psychologists who worked in a certain framework, were, as it were, expert in that framework, had better intuitions about that area of psychology than other psychologists and than lay people. He was able to say that they were better because he had independent evidence of what the truth was. And that's very important, it seems to me, for seeing why we need to be a bit dubious of intuitions. That's one piece of evidence. Then there's a whole lot of psychological evidence which has been beautifully summed up in uh, Jonathan Weinberg's and et al's paper. They just went through the literature showing that in general, experts do have better intuitions than non-experts. There are some exceptions. You find that experts have better intuitions in, for example, weather prediction and in a whole lot of places you'd really expect them to, but not, and I got to say this confirms my prejudices, not when it comes to therapists and not when it comes to stockbrokers. Expertise here does not lead to better predictions, better intuitions, but generally it does, yes. Does that mean we've solved this then? Does that mean that if we want to understand reference, we need to just go to experts and ask their intuitions? Well, no, it doesn't. You see, think back a bit. Think back to Wisniewski. He had tested the experts' intuitions against the non-experts, and he was able to say the experts were better. But how could he do that? Well, it's because he had an independent test. What's this independent test? Well, it's the actual looking at the reality itself. So there's a real problem altogether with using intuitions, and the problem is that intuitions are only indirect evidence. Here that you've got people who have opinions about something, like reference or whatever, what you surely need to come up with a scientific theory is not tested against people's intuitions about the significant properties in question. You need to actually examine the world. You don't do paleontology by arriving on, resting on the intuitions of paleontologists about old bones, let alone the folks' views of old bones. You don't do biology by resting on the intuitions of biologists about living things, let alone the folks' intuitions about living things. You do these sciences by looking at the reality in question. So with the Girdle example, how could we possibly decide the issue empirically? That's a very good question. Look, the general framework for what we should do, I've been arguing in testing theories of reference, is forget about testing intuitions, test usage, because linguistic usage is the reality. In this case, it's a sort of equivalent of if you're doing biology, look at biological reality. If you're doing reference, look at the reality of reference, and reality of reference is to be found in usage. Now, that's the general principle, but it's actually, I confess, extremely hard to do in practice, and I've been struggling to do it now for a couple of years. But we have recently conducted what I think is quite a promising experiment, partly on the Girdle example. The final question that Kripke raised was, well, What's your intuition, basically, about what in this cir- these counterfactual circumstances the name Girdle refers to? And when the experimentalists conducted their experiments on the Hong Kong and Rutgers students, they reproduced pretty much that question. What are we talking about with the name Girdle in this hypothetical situation? If you uh, want to go to the route I'm urging here and test usage, you have to look for something different. What you've got to try and do is prompt people to respond with language to the situation you have described. Instead of asking them what the name Gödel refers to or anything like that, 
you rather try and prompt them to say things about the story they've just heard. This is what's called elicited production. It's a technique we take over from the linguist. What you're trying to do is elicit from them sentences which will reveal whether they take the name to refer to the person who is in fact Gödel or rather to Schmidt. Here's a way you can do it. If you just say to them, what do you think about Gödel at the end of this story? And if they say anything like, well, he's a thief and a liar, well, then you know perfectly well that they have taken the name Gödel to be referring to the actual Gödel because they've, after all, got the facts of this story and they know that there's only one thief and liar. And so if they say Gödel is the thief and liar, we know perfectly well that they're referring to the person who is, as a matter of fact, Gödel and not to Schmidt. If, on the other hand, they say, well, I think Gödel is a, a great logician or anything, in fact, praising about Gödel, you'll know that they've taken the name Gödel to refer to Schmidt. And you won't be surprised to hear that in the experiment we've just conducted, almost everyone quite clearly took the name Gödel to be referring to the actual Gödel, not Schmidt. So that is a test of a theory of reference against usage. It's not a test against intuitions. So would it be fair to summarise what you've been saying is this, that there are these experimental philosophers who go out into the world and ask people about their intuitions, but that's a mistake. What they should have been doing is better experimental philosophy and actually observe people's behaviour. Yes, I think that's a, that's a fair way to do it. It's just, I've got to say, difficult to do. But if we can do this, then we can actually, I think, make advances in the theory of reference. To me, as, an, as a long-time fan of Saul's refutation description theories, I don't feel I've learned anything from conducting the experiment I've just conducted. It's simply confirmed what I think was pretty obvious, which was that Saul is right. But there are vast areas of the theory of reference where we don't really know what to believe, Intuitions there are utterly useless because we don't have any. That is, who knows what's the right theory of reference for paperweight or even for tiger, TV. What's the right theory of reference? Kindle. This is very, very difficult stuff. And these seem to me to be the really promising areas to try and actually ad advance our understanding. And the only way to do this is to forget about intuitions and actually start testing usage. So the right way to respond to armchair philosophy about reference is to test linguistic usage. The wrong way to respond, which is the way the experimentalists are responding so far, is simply to pull up more armchairs for the folk. Michael Devitt, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. For more Philosophy Bites, go to www.philosophybites.com. You can also find details there of Philosophy Bites books and how to support us.